Take your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 18. As we begin another fantastic passage uh, here in the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we find out a little bit more about the end and also find out exactly how much energy I steal from you as I read your faces, as I preach, and only have three faces to read. God's Word written for you today, Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Plagues for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning, and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon. For in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep Mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of 
articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence, and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists, musicians of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we do ask that you would give life and light. And we know your word is perfect. However, our minds and hearts are not. And so we ask that you would give understanding, increase our faith. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.
One of my kind of great interests ministerially, having conversations over the last, I don't know, decade and a half with people, has been kind of listening to and paying attention to and learning the little lies that we like to tell ourselves to make our minds seem a little bit more stable. To make the world around us seem just a little bit more enjoyable. To make themes perhaps seem a little bit less scary. And it's amazing how many of them are, are consistent, how universally we do these. They're not good, we shouldn't do it, but how much we do. I mean, simple things, some of them, like uh, how many people believe they're above average intelligence? I love that question because the definition of average means that only half of us should be in that category. It's very rare that you'll ever meet somebody that's like, yeah, I don't think I'm in the top half. I just don't think it's one of those little lies that we tell ourselves, that we tell ourselves that we are special. Or, uh, we've talked about this one before with those little spiritual gift tests, which I always uh, get a chuckle out of, how everybody seems to believe they have the gift of discernment. And what that equates to is everybody believes they are excellent at reading other people or other situations. It's very rare that you meet somebody who's like, you know what, one of the great challenges I have in my life right now is that I just don't read situations well. If you would just tell me how to read the room, that would be immensely helpful. I'm not sure I've ever had anyone ask that of me. But hey, maybe I'm the one that's the problem and I can't read the room. One of the interesting lies that we consistently tell ourselves, which honestly, prior to three weeks ago, would have been the perfect sermon opener for this is the lie that everything will always be the same and always has been. This is a lie that is, in many ways, the foundation of, I would say, all of modernism. I would say all of modern life, really. It's the lie that uh, all of even the scientific method is built upon, that all of scientism is built upon. It's the lie that everything has always been the way that it's been now. The rules have never changed. The world has never drastically changed, and it never will. I mean, sure, there's progress, there's improvement, and it's incremental. But no massive, catastrophic or overwhelming change. It's part of the argument of evolution. Can't believe in a creator God because things are always, always have been the way they are now. Now, as modernism kind of built upon this lie, it was really challenged with the two world wars as it kind of forced people to go, no, you know, things are sometimes different. Again, challenged in Vietnam with that terrible war forcing people to kind of come to terms with the the reality of a changing globe. Uh, But it's amazing how much it, again, kind of lurks in the back of our minds. How much we live our lives daily by that kind of presumption that I just have to kind of keep motoring on because the world never changes. 
because the world never changes. The problem with this lie, obviously, is kind of twofold. One is that it doesn't hold up for seasons like the one that we're currently in, as I preach to a largely empty room. As an entire globe kind of is in a frenzy of concern over a virus that's devastating many families around the world. The other thing is that it certainly isn't true when it's held up against the book of Revelation. It's that lie that we tell ourselves that we we build our entire lives around in many cases, but it does not hold up to Scripture. Which is why, in many ways, you could even say the coronavirus, COVID-19, or whatever, is a gift to God's church to help kind of challenge those assumptions. To challenge that presupposition that the world will always continue the way that it has. To force us to consider that, you know what? Just because it has been largely the same for much of my lifetime doesn't mean it always will. I mean, if you just think about it from a simple world perspective, the time in which this book is being written, 95, 96 AD, you would look around and say, well, hey, Rome is here and it's always going to be the same. Rome has been the mighty powerhouse for, you know, more than a century. They've conquered Greece, which was unconquerable, it seemed, and now it'll always be the same. No, it won't. A few short centuries later, Rome is effectively gone, more or less, from its great powerhouse, and the world is different. Everything has changed. Revelation chapter 18, I think, is calling God's people to contemplate the nature of that change. Jesus would uh, challenge that same sort of presupposition. He would call us to those same sort of contemplations. He would use it in different language there. He'd use different language to make that challenge. He would say things like, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He would say things like, do not store up for yourselves treasures here. Instead, store up treasures there. He would challenge his people to live in light of the kingdom of heaven and not solely in light of the kingdom of man and to even go so far in some of the epistles to warn of the love of the world creeping in. Chapter 18 hits this head on as we see the fall of Babylon. And throughout the book of Revelation, Babylon is kind of this symbolic figure. One, because Babylon is the great enemy from of old, the the Old Testament enemy, the portrayal of all of the bad guys that are arrayed against God and his people. It's the nation that's used to destroy the people of God, even so far as we had there in Psalm 137, tormenting them even in exile. However, in Revelation here, Babylon has not just 
maintain that kind of socio-geographic, political, nation-state sort of emphasis of the actual city of Babylon, but has been expanded to include Rome. At this point, the great seat of culture and economy and power and strength in the world at the time in which this is written. But even then, doesn't stop with Rome, but is expanded to even refer to, in, in essence, all of human culture. The sum totality of what we would call the world in Reformed circles. That nature and lifestyle that humanity has created and imposed upon the created order. The sum totality of music and art, of economy and consumption, of what makes our lifestyles our lifestyles. And in chapter 18, we see the end of that. The end of Babylon, the end of Rome, the end of human culture, the end of the world as we know it. And if you've been singing that this week, I know it's been an easy song to have ring in our brains. Verses 1 through 3 set out the stage. Another angel comes down from heaven and this constant interchange of the angels and conversations taking place. This one is noted, however, as having great authority. He's a special one. And when he arrives, he brings with him the glory of God. He's coming directly from God's presence, having authority and power and glory in a special way, and begins the proclamation. Babylon. Babylon the Great is fallen. Now, again, in the time in which this would have been uh, originally read, it, it would have been like, you know, if you were back on shore and read the telegram or heard the telegram read out that the Titanic, the Titanic has sunk and been destroyed. It, this would have been an inconceivable idea that, that Babylon could fall, that Rome could fall. This is the thing that's always going to be around, that is always going to be here, that's always going to be filled with power and strength. Babylon's fallen. Now, this is the prophetic part. We don't see the fulfillment till the end of the chapter. And you might say, well, that's a bit unfair. I mean, mankind, men and women, boys and girls have come up with such marvelous things. I mean, such marvelous things. Listening to a cello piece by Bach, marveling at the command of color or Emotion in a Van Gogh or a Monet. Pondering any of the, the beauties and brilliances of humanity. A reading this week again on the coronavirus theme running to, I think it was the University of Pittsburgh. I think I'm, I last week, I guess, read the article. They, uh, 
and working for a vaccination for this. This is amazing. They took a vaccine that's already been used in this country for decades and decades, and they already know every scientific study ever has proved that it has no negative consequences. And they took that vaccine and they cut the end of it off and then pasted the coronavirus on so that all of the other parts of the vaccine that they know or have no kind of long-term damage, now we're only having to test to see what the impact in the human body is once you add in the coronavirus in an attempt to jumpstart the vaccination process to get rid of COVID-19 and its effects in the world. How clever! So it might be a little bit unfair for us to say, well, I mean, all of, why would we want all of human culture? Why would we want uh, that which represents what humanity has accomplished, the spirit of man? Why would we want that to fall? Well, the angel explains, there's more than meets the eye. See, the problem is not just that, uh, the problem is that humanity is not just those high points. It's not just the, the peaks and pinnacles of what humanity is. If you look at the sum totality of human culture, it's become a dwelling place for demons. The devil fits right at home. It's weird to think of human culture in that way, isn't it? That it's become a haunt for every unclean spirit. It's become this kind of symbolic portrait of that which is unclean. And you think, well, I mean, okay, maybe that's a bit uncharitable. And I would say, sure, okay, fair enough. What would your great-great-grandparents have thought if you would just put Netflix on and just let it play through whatever's on, what would they have thought? And I imagine my great-great-grandparents would have been quoting Revelation 18, even if they didn't know it. <laughs> and the stuff that we can consume on television now, even on like the regular television stuff. Those generations, just go back a couple of generations, and they would have been saying, oh, this is unclean. It's filthy. The nations have become drunk on immorality. That's almost a direct quote of the text. And in fact, actually, it's not just that the culture has gone this way, but even the governments of the world have gotten involved. The kings of the earth, they have sold their soul. Rather than governing with righteousness and justice and honor and integrity, they've instead fallen prey to the love of pleasure, the love of money. the love of power. Again, easy illustration with that. This week, our government passed a spectacularly expensive bill to try to help out those uh, that have lost income uh, from uh, being out of work with the coronavirus. And it's interesting watching both sides accuse each other of this exact thing. 
Why are we not able to pass this bill? Well, because you people are trying to uh, increase your power to you know, give money to those that support you to try to, you know, take it. you've fallen in love with the money. You're not actually trying to help and govern righteously. And the other side saying the same thing to the other, both sides saying that to each other. Saying you're immoral. You've grown rich from the power of luxurious living. This is one of those few times where you can say both sides of politicians. I think you're probably both right in some fashion. I don't know how much. I don't know your hearts. I don't know the complexities of the inner workings of what happens in Washington behind the scenes. I don't know, but in some way I bet you're both right. This is the part that we tend to neglect and forget about is that uh, the culture in the background has become so spectacularly corrupt. And as the old illustration goes of the frog in the boiling water, I fear that Christians today are simply just growing accustomed to it. I mean, again, I, I just think about the, the television shows that were considered shocking when I was a kid. I remember, I mean, the first show I remember being genuinely treated as shocking in the culture today was The Simpsons. And right now it's what, perhaps one of the cleanest shows on television? Certainly probably the cleanest show on Fox. I do worry, I have great concern that we ourselves are in danger of this, of forgetting that the culture around us is it's polluted, it's corrupting, and it corrupts us. How frequently our love for Christ is, is weakened and not extinguished, but drowned out by the pleasures of the world. John, I think you gets to see this tension kind of written large for him here in verse 4 because while the one angel is prophesying against uh, Babylon, against Rome, against the economies, cultures, and, and nations of the day, another angel begins to speak to the people of God and says, it's time to go, folks. Come out, people. Get out, get out, get out so that you don't take part in her sins. Lest you share in her plagues. Lest you be contaminated along the way. Why? Because her sins are high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. In fact, actually so much so in a way that is extremely complex and uh, requires probably a fuller treatment than even we could do in this sermon. God includes his people in some fashion in the judgment. She has this culture, uh, Rome, Babylon, the, the, the fullness of this human immorality has victimized the Christians over and over again, has taken advantage of the Christians, has persecuted them, has mocked them. 
Here in verse 6, you have a reference to Psalm 137, even with the angel calling for the judgment to be heaped upon them in a double portion in accordance to what they have done against the people of God. And it's interesting how it gives a number of kind of reasons for Christians to kind of think this way, to to be challenged this way. But it's interesting how in verse 7 it does highlight that exact lie that we started with. That things will always be the same, that nothing's ever going to change. Verse 7, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury... So give her a like, a similar measure of torment and mourning since in her heart she, this is what the culture says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. I'm my own boss, I'm my own God, I'm my own charge, and nothing can change that. And it's for this reason that plagues are going to come. Now, certainly this is not a call for Christians to go and try to build their own, you know, Christian hippie camps like we saw in the 60s and 70s where you had the Jesus freaks move out into the hills and try to grow their own produce and become their own homesteaders or things like that. That's not at all the right uh, choice there. I think instead what we have is the perfect portrait of what that life looks like in the Lord Jesus. One who who lived in the community that he was in. He lived in the culture that he was in. However, his heart and his values and his priorities and his pleasures belonged to the kingdom of heaven and not to the kingdom of man. He lived in the world around him. He worked in the world around him. He taught in the world around him. But his heart did not belong there. His heart belonged in heaven. And again, I do wonder, that's my question for so many of us, is where does our heart live? One of the great gifts, again, the coronavirus is giving, exposing some of those tensions in our soul where our heart, I think, in so many times longs for the pleasures of this world. You don't believe me, just think about the frenzy for toilet paper. I mean, just how ridiculous is that? How many thousands of years did people exist just fine without it? And yet, we can't do it today. Have to freak out and go buy all the toilet paper in the store so no one else can have any. God calls his people to make sure their hearts are not placed in the love of the world around them, to make sure their hearts are not devoted to the kingdom of man, instead that their hearts are devoted to the kingdom of heaven. 
Because here's the contrast, here's the reality is if you are a child of God and your heart is devoted to the kingdom of heaven, the long-term yield will always be joy. In the short term, you're going to have difficulty. In the short term, you'll have hurt feelings, you'll have challenges. That is the truth. But in the long term, it will always produce joy. However, the other side, those that devote their hearts to the kingdom of this earth, the long-term result is always sorrow. Verses uh, 9 through 20 lay out three separate laments as three separate categories of people grieve over the loss of this great culture. First, it's the royalty, the kings of the earth, those in positions of power. They weep as Babylon falls largely because they lose their own immorality, their own pleasure, their own luxury with it. It's that age-old thing. What's a politician's favorite ethic, value? That which will get him or her reelected. What's the goal of every president? A second term. What's the goal of all the kings of the earth here kind of laid out here is in this way is being framed out as it's to continue in their positions of glory and pleasure and power. And so when the culture is destroyed, when God comes and destroys all of the kingdoms of the earth, they grieve because they've lost their own pleasures. Secondly, you see the merchants of the earth, they grieve in verses 11 through 13. They grieve because all of the the, uh, merchandise, the cargo they've been transporting uh, is no longer valuable. And it's interesting that John includes such an extensive list for us here because by the standards of this day, every item in the list is a purely luxury item. Now, again, we read this a couple thousand years later and go, slaves, that is human souls, not a luxury item, evil item, something that should never happen. But in the day in which this is written, everything here either deals with things that are... um, Clothing that is fancier, things that smell good, or things that make your life exceedingly easy. And so the merchants grieve because as the culture collapses, as judgment is administered, their their wares have no value. And what a beautiful reminder for God's people that things that even though it's valuable in this life have no value in the life to come. Again, I think that's why it's hinted at coming up where the streets are paved with gold. Why? Because that which is the most valuable thing here isn't even worth using as a paving material. The economy of heaven is so different than the economy of earth. Then you have the sailors and the the captains all grieving again that their entire industry, that all of uh, human economy is destroyed with us, that the culture collapses. But interestingly, verse 20, God's people are called to rejoice. Because they don't lose anything. 
That's the amazing thing to remember is that here in chapter 18, where all of kind of human existence is prophesied as being destroyed as we know it, God is explicit in saying the church loses nothing. You may lose your job, your house, all that you know, all of your possessions. It's nothing because of what you gain in the life to come. And 21 through 24 explains the nature of that destruction. And again, this kind of symbolic portrait here is the angel grabs a giant stone, chucks it into the sea, and you get this kind of descriptive symbolic portrayal of the entire city of Babylon just being destroyed instantly. And the consequence of it is that all the things that we would consider to be bright and beautiful disappear. There's no music in verse 22. There's no craftsmen. There's no industry. There's no light. We would think of that today as electricity from our kind of modern perspective. There's not even any joyful marriage and the blessings uh, of the union that comes there. Uh, Everything just, all all the bright and beautiful things just cease to exist. Because the culture of the day ever since Genesis 3, has been arrayed against our God. And I would lovingly just maybe point out a couple of quick applications specifically for us in our current season. One, use this passage, use this virus, use this time at home, use the quarantine or whatever else is coming to shape our minds in a formative way to understand, to realize this will not last forever. This country, greatest country in human history, will not last forever. This state, greatest state in the greatest country, in human history will not last forever. This language, English, that we speak, honestly, one of the worst ones. It's not going to last forever. The music that we think of, the industry that we think of, the life that we know, it will not last forever. And for those of us in the church that are on the younger end of the spectrum, there is a greater temptation for us to believe that. That it will last forever. We'll think, oh, I'm 20, I'm 30, I'm 40. I have decades and decades left. Do you really? (laughs) I mean, if it only took one little virus and the whole entire world is stopping, do you really? What happened when God actually shows up? Let it shape our minds that this will not last. Let's store up our treasures in the life to come. Live your life for that which will last. I said it last week, but again, the interest rate in heaven is way better than any bank can give you here. 
store up treasures, build for yourself rewards in God's kingdom. He honors obedience. He delights in his children. He rewards us for our good deeds, not because we deserve any, but because he is so generous that even after the salvation of the Lord Jesus, he blesses us for any good work that we do. And I think lastly and most importantly, both in Corona time and in light of the end times, part of the challenge here is that we're, we're dealing with a category of person that is close to the world and not close to Jesus. And I suspect that this passage would read maybe a, a little bit differently if it were intentionally aimed at thinking about Christians that are specifically... <laughs> captivated with, obsessed with, consumed with being close to Jesus. May it be that these days the Lord would accomplish it in his church that we would be close to Jesus. For he's always close to us. He is faithful even when we are not. Let's pray. Lord, we honor you for your word. We bless you. We delight in you. We praise you. Oh God, would you draw us close to Christ, we ask for his sake. Amen.